photo shoots with five families yesterday. Great time. Good time. And on the last family, my camera broke. So praise God, it was in service of serving people in the church. So if you were hoping to get your pictures done, you should have got them done already. That camera's gone to be with the Lord, whatever that means. <laughs> we will figure it out. Oh, man, I thought it was funny. That was hilarious. It worked for a minute, and then I was like, what's wrong with this thing? And that thing was like, you the problem, you know. <laughs> so that's that. All right, let's get into a series that we have been waiting for to officially begin. I want to just say this on the front end, what the goal is of this series, because the way we typically as 21st century Christians think about the Bible, we think about it from the standpoint of, what do I do? What is it asking me to do? Like, you know, what we come to think of it like the law. What's it asking me to do? What's it commanding me to do? I, I read the Bible to benefit me. This is why we don't read a lot of Old Testament books unless we're doing a Bible through the year book. Because it's not beneficial to us. I don't, you don't know what Obadiah is talking about. He's not New Testament, right? So we, we approach the Bible in that way. So when you, when you experience a series like this, you can think, well, well, what's the, what's the, why are we talking about this? How does this affect me, spiritual warfare? I just got to fight and honor the Lord and persevere, right? Absolutely. This series isn't changing that, but there's a deeper goal that I know myself and at least Mike have for our church in this series. And the goal of this series for us is not to, it's to encourage, obviously, the sobriety of the reality of spiritual warfare, but also also to cultivate an endless fascination with the Word of God. Many of us have lost the fascination with the Word of God. We're not as impressed by it. It's, it's, more, it's more arduous for us to read it. It's more of a task. It's more of a chore. The term spiritual disciplines is not supposed to be what it, what it always takes to read the Bible and get something from it. And this is for many reasons. I'm not here to shame anyone for that. I, I go through that at times as well. But the goal is, how can we cultivate awe in God and an endless fascination with his word? And one of those ways is to look at the Bible from a deeper level that we don't normally look at. So there's a few things that you have to keep in mind for this series to really process what we're calling the supernatural storyline of the Bible this is not going to be a bunch of crazy stuff, try to have us falling out and doing floating in the air and trying to do crazy stuff. No, we're trying to be serious about what the Bible actually says and give you a, a deeper realization, not some new super spiritual thing that you're going to see why we're talking about this. And we'll, as best as we can, offer biblical credibility for what we're saying. This isn't just making stuff up to make you get excited and emotional. It's to cultivate an endless fascination with the Word of God. So a few things we have to know to really understand this series. One, we are trying to think of these verses in the Bible the way the Jews in the ancient Near East did. Not the way you and I think right now. When God originally wrote the Bible to particular people, yes, it's the word of God. Yes, we read it. Yes, we benefit from it. But it wasn't written to us. It was written for us. What did the people the Bible was written to think about what was said? 
And so one thing we have to understand is the ancient Near East civilizations do not see the world scientifically the way that we do. They're not looking at the order of creation and thinking scientifically, well, wait a minute, how can this be there and then this be here on day four? Science, they don't think scientifically, they think supernaturally. So there may be things that you're like, I don't know, scientifically, but that's not the point that we're trying. I'm not trying to convince you from a scientific perspective to accept this. We're trying to explain how did they see these things based on the cultures they lived in and why was God communicating particular things to them? They affect us, but they weren't for us. They weren't to us. Second thing we have to remember is that God is telling this story knowing everything that happens that is going to happen. So as God finally gets his creation account established, he knows everything that's been said, everything that's going to be said, because he's the Alpha and Omega. So when he writes these things down and has Moses or whoever's writing these words, whomever, he knows what's going to happen. Lastly, God is telling this story 750 years after supernatural evil deities told their stories. God does not begin a creation account until Exodus 20. But when we get to the Tower of Babel in this storyline, we'll see that it was much deeper than just people trying to build a tower up to God. That was the beginning of significant stories of who God is and how people came in to be. And God waits 750 years before he starts his story. He's not concerned with having the first narrative. He's concerned with having the right narrative. Having said that, let's begin with Genesis 1. And I quote, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is our text today. There are two realities, two realities that stand out in this scene. The first is the deep. What is the deep? The second is the waters, the light, I'm sorry. So you have the deep, verse 2, and then the light, verse 3. Those are two fundamental realities that stand out. So let's start with part one, the deep. Now, there's something that we have to understand about this particular creation account. There are many creation accounts in the Bible, many of them. You'll see Psalms, and you created the stars and the heaven, and the, you see God talking to Job, were you there when I created? There are multiple creation accounts in the Bible. And we have been told, rightly so, that God created 
everything out of nothing. This is a theological term called ex nihilo. God created something out of nothing. Out of nothing, everything created, right? So I've always been a big bang supporter. God said, let there be light bang, and there it was. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that personally. That's just me. So we know that God created everything from nothing. But in this scene, we see some things are already present that don't seem to be created by God. In the opening scene, we see water is there prior to God creating the world. And we see darkness is there. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form. You see the earth is there. But it has no form. Form was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here's the scene. The earth is not in planet form the way we know it to be, right? Void, when it says it's formless and void, void is essentially saying it's a wasteland. It's just a wasteland. It's a space. It's a wasteland, right? And then there's darkness. It's giving you this impression. Darkness is sort of protruding everywhere. There's darkness all over the place, over this wasteland. Now, darkness in the ancient Near East represented chaos. It represented chaos, disorder, the absence of the presence of God. This is why you see when we get to Revelation, you'll see when God talks about those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and they're in the city, and then it'll say those outside the city in the outer darkness, right? There's a reason darkness represents something chaotic, disorder. It represents a, a level of evil, something to fear. And it says darkness is hovering over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. So what is the deep? The deep, the Hebrew word for deep is tehom. And the deep means sea or abyss, or a body of water that's so massive that it could be only explained by its depth, deep. In most translations, the word ocean does not exist. There's only two translations that I can find, New Living Translation, another one that used the word oceans. Oceans is not a word that the ancient Near East had. Most credible translations do not translate massive bodies of water of ocean like us, where the sea is a smaller derivative of the ocean, but they see what we would call the ocean, the massive, they would call that sea or waters or deep. Now, in much of the Bible and in our own minds, water is a life-giving reality. Most of us know water is a necessity. We may support organizations that put waterfalls and wells in Africa. We know that water is something that gives life. The human body is made up of 60% of water. Jesus himself is called living water. Water gushes out of Jesus' body in John 19, 24, when the Roman soldier, to prove that he's dead, sticks a spear in the side of his body, and it says, blood and water come out. Water is typically seen as an amazing necessity. As one who used to do photography, I'm joking. I'll be back. P. 
pictures where the ocean are there, just like, oh, wow, that's so beautiful. Water is an amazing thing. So why then is water here in the midst of chaos, darkness, and disorder? It says, darkness is over the deep and the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. This is not telling us that God created the waters. It's saying the waters were there in a time, in a place that represents the opposite of God. But we've always thought water to be this amazing reality. Though it can be destructive, for the most part, water represents something, the key to life. But in this scene, water is there as a part of chaos, disorder, and destruction. This is not a scene that's good. What is God trying to say here? Now, keep in mind that Genesis, as I said a few minutes ago, is written after God takes them through the Red Sea. And then the beginning of the creation, he starts with him hovering over the sea. But it's not coincidental. What is God trying to communicate about creation to the Jews who were taken out of Egypt. And if there's no darkness in God, I mean, the Bible describes God as light and he's preexistent. So if God is preexistent, he's always created and he's always light, then why is he here in darkness? Why would he create starting with darkness when he's light? Does God need to create from darkness? Why is water there? This is chaos and terror. It needs the presence of God. Is this how God begins creation? This scene isn't describing creation from the standpoint that nothing existed and then it does. Because God doesn't need to start with darkness to create. He starts from himself, which is light. This creation account is describing something else entirely. And the point here is for a totally different reason than what we typically think. Let's look again at verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just a brief introduction, verse 1. Verse 2 is where the action is. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. So here's the picture that God's creating. It's a stack. Here's what God wants you to see. Here's a stack. Formless earth, right? Then darkness, that earth, right? Then waters, and then the Spirit of God. Right? There's a stack, right? So you got God the Spirit hovering over the waters, the waters hovering over the darkness, over the earth. So that's the stack. Why is God explaining this to the Jews and then to us? Why is this stack there? In the ancient Near East, Chaos and disorder are often associated with 
the sea in large bodies of water. And the reason being is that almost every non-biblical creation account, in almost every non-biblical creation account, the sea or the deep is characterized by a multitude of sea deities that are extremely powerful and are often at odds with each other for other primeval elements. Now, primeval just means as long as time has existed, right? Doesn't mean like primeval, like, oh, he's really evil. No, it just means it's really old, right? Scott, I know we live in a scientific world, primeval. No, it's not even spelled E-V-I-L, it's E-V-A-L, right? It just means it's been around for a long time. It's, my, it's so old that it pre-exists for some of these civilizations, the gods that they worship. Now, primeval waters are often deified in Mesopotamian, Kemetic, Babylonian, Assyrian, and other religious philosophies in the ancient Near East. And because water existed before these civilizations did, many of their creation stories see water as a powerful deity or the place in which these gods created themselves. This is the, these are the narratives that the Jews have been exposed to. The Egyptians. This is a culture that Israel is the most familiar with because it spent 400 years in slavery to them. They have a multitude of different creations accounts because depending on who Pharaoh was, that would be God to them. The creation accounts could vary. But there are similarities, there are consistencies in each of these. So what we're going to do right now is listen to the four creation accounts that Israel would have been most familiar with. So the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and then the Romans. So here are the creation accounts. Here's a creation account. These are just brief. This is what's called heliopolitan theology. This is comedic Egyptian creation narrative. Here it is. The creator, Atum, who later becomes Ra. Siri, cut it out. <laughs> Siri is the habitual line stepper. She will say. <laughs> so the creator, Atum, who later becomes Ra. Don't think the devil doesn't use Siri, too. He does. There's a reason why we have to keep spell checking. So this creator, Atum, who becomes raw, emerges from a watery abyss called the nun. So the creator of their sort of Egyptian theology comes out of a watery abyss called the nun. But he's a pre-existent deity who creates himself. I don't know how you can be pre-existent if you create yourself, right? But, <laughs> but this is their theology. He creates himself out of the water and tries to bring order to chaos. And then he starts to create the earth and, and the heavens and what we know in our creation account. So he creates himself in the nun, which we would call biblically the deep. It's brief. A lot could be said, but we're going to keep moving. Ugaritic theology, Assyrian theology. We would be most familiar with this one in the Old Testament because it's the center of Baal worship, Assyria. 
Assyria is located in the north where the northern kingdoms were, the 10 northern kingdoms. It's why in 722, God used Assyria to punish Israel for their disobedience and they were taken into captivity. It was an easy transition because they were right next door to them. In Ugaritic Assyrian theology, creation's narrative, it centers around Baal. That's why we hear all the Baal worship in the Old Testament. Well, in this narrative, Yom was the force of chaos. Yom. Yom is also described as the sea. Yom is the sea and is a force of chaos that needs to be subdued. There was a seven-headed sea monster called Latanu that is terrorizing, it's terrible, that people are afraid of, you fear. Well, Baal defeats Yom, the sea, kills the sea dragon, Latanu, and then brings order in the midst of chaos by creating everything that is described for us in the six days of creation. So they would attribute what we would attribute to God to Baal, except in our narrative, God doesn't defeat the sea and there's no sea dragon. The Jews would have heard this. Some of them believed this for hundreds of years. Remember how often the Jews were drawn to Baal worship. Why would you worship what does it mean to worship? You believe in their gods. You believe in their narratives. You believe their creation stories. Then you have the Babylonian account, which would be the book of Daniel. We're in 586, between 605 and 586 BC, God allowed the southern kingdom to be taken captive by the Babylonians. Here's their creation narrative. Apsu, well, first of all, there are two sides of the watery abyss, one male, female. Apsu is the male side of the watery abyss. He wants to destroy the other primeval elements that they see as gods, land, air, all these other elements. Straight Captain Planet, just think Captain Planet. <laughs> There's another god, Ea, E-A, like E-A Sports. This is where I think E-A Sports got it from. For real, for real, right? Another god, Ea, destroys Apsu. Ea has a son named Marduk, who is the Yahweh of their pantheon. Marduk's female counterpart is a water-based dragon named Tiamat. Tiamat is spelled very similar to Tehom, the Hebrew word used for sea. Marduk kills Tiamat, splits her body into two pieces, making one part heaven and the other part earth. This is their creation narrative. This, the Jews would have been inundated with this creation story. And then in the New Testament, you have Rome. Here's Rome's creation account. They believe the world started out with only one primordial deity, which was chaos. Chaos is a deity to them. This is why they're into fate and all this stuff. 
Chaos was a dark, silent abyss that all of creation exists in. Now, the first thing to emerge from this abyss was the second deity, Gaia. And that, and, and that was the earth. Gaia was said to be the mother of the universe, and from her came Uranus or the sky. Many other primordial deities emerged from chaos, notably Cupid, the god of love. So Gaia is the earth and is the first god to come out of this chaos, which is the sea. This is why we hear people say stuff like Mother Earth today. This is where that comes from. So as you see, we're still affected today by Roman creation mythology. Mother Earth comes from this, Gaia. After this generation of gods, then you had Titans. Titans were the offspring of Gaia and Uranus. Then you have, then it gets crazy, right? It just becomes all, you get Prometheus and you get Atlas, right? You get all this stuff. Atlas is known for his punishment of upholding the sky as a punishment for the Olympian war. So the earth is on an axis because of Atlas. But that's just some whackness that should blacklist. Y'all don't want that smoke today. Y'all don't want that today. And just so y'all know, that's not tongues. That's, that was a joke. I don't do that. For anyone who's like, oh, I thought they didn't do that here. We don't. That was a joke. That's why people are laughing. Look, I could go on and on about there's so many various creations accounts. Now, keep in mind that all of these accounts, these creation accounts, were created by cosmic powers of darkness, supernatural beings that God created that are rebelling against God. That's what these creations accounts come from. You have to keep that in mind. Having said all of that, let's go back to Genesis 1 and see what God is communicating here. Verse 2 again. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Let's remember the stack. Formless earth, darkness, the deep, the spirit. Right? Spirit, deep, darkness, earth. So what is God saying to first to the Jews who were taken out of Egypt and then to the rest of us in light of their exposure to these false creation narratives? Why is God using this scene to communicate to them? What is he saying to them? Here's what God is saying. The chaos and the darkness that is associated with these other gods is beneath me. It's beneath me, both physically and metaphysically. God is hovering over all of them, communicating, I have the high ground. I'm the most high God. I am above each of these deities, these sea creatures, this fear, this chaos, this darkness, I am above all of it, looking down at all of this. 
He's saying that he's an authority over chaos, darkness, and any sea deity that any of these civilizations claim to worship. This is not just the origin of how the world became the world. It's the origin of how God subdues the power of the other gods who claim to create the world. He's not worried about the scientific aspect of it. He's, he's speaking to them knowing you're wrestling with these supernatural creation stories. And as you've been afraid of these gods who are the darkness and the chaos, I am over them. I'm looking down on them like I'm outside. He is proving once again, I am the most high God. I am hovering over them. The spirit is hovering over them. Like, what do we feel like doing today? Now, remember, these are the gods that these other civilizations fear and worship. And the Jews have been exposed to these gods and they were drawn to worship these gods. And God is saying, I'm hovering over them. Their creation narrative forgot one thing, me. Now, someone is probably like, yeah, Pastor Kurt, I don't know, that sounds all right, but I'm not sure, I don't know, I don't know about that. And I respect that. You should be a Berean, I respect that. So let's do this. Let's do a brief theology of the sea, all right? This is, we could spend, we could do a series on this, just the sea. Let's do a brief biblical theology of the sea. And this is what I mean. We're just going to look at a couple of verses to see where the sea plays a role and how God interacts with the sea. These are all in your Bible, no outside stuff. This is straight Bible, all right? I'm only choosing a few of these because I could literally do a couple sermons. Me and Mike could sit here and map out a, a biblical theology of the sea, and we would see like, whoa, this is crazy. All right? So let's begin in Psalm 74, verse 12. This is in your Bible. Incredible translation. Here's what it says. Unless you have the Gospel of Thomas or some of the Thomas Jefferson Bible, then I rebuke you. All right, here we go. Verse 12, yet my God, yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Listen, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Okay, let's hear what God is saying. So here's what happens. We think scientifically, right? Here's our problem. We think scientifically and we think this is describing dinosaurs. This is what we think. I'm not trying to mock anyone. Don't, 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 I'm, I'm, science is amazing. We need science. Don't get me wrong. I'm not mocking science. I'm not mocking it. Science is amazing. But we see things scientifically and we think, oh, this is, this is what these are. No, 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 no. What sea monsters is he talking about? You broke the heads of the sea monsters. The psalmist is describing that you have authority over the other gods that are considered sea monsters that these other civilizations worship. You broke their heads and gave them like food to the other creatures. In other words, they mean nothing to you. This is what he's communicating. These sea monsters aren't 
dinosaurs. Leviathan is not a huge crocodile. Leviathan, which you'll see later on in this series, is a specific, a specific deity from another religious philosophy that Yahweh is saying, that's my pet. That's, you, you, when he said to Job, can you control the Leviathan who terrorizes? He was saying, man, I, I give that dude his food. Man, I don't, no, I don't, want, I don't want to make anybody upset. Listen, Daniel chapter 7. Listen to, listen to this. Listen to, how to, listen to this. Verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So you see how these beasts come out of the sea. Why do they always come out of the sea? They come out of the sea because God is communicating something. This are, these are what people are afraid of. These visions are not just, they're, they're, it's apocalyptic literature, right? It's symbolic, but it's not just symbolic of, it's symbolic of the other religions that are out to attack the true God. So these beasts come out of the sea with horns and this and that, and they're ferocious. And it's like, it's supposed to represent these are powerful creatures. But then you get to Mark, Mark 6. And again, I'm telling you, man, I could go through tons of verses. Mark 6, this is what he says in Mark 6. This is the narrative, right? And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Let's not even talk about how he saw that, right? Because this is at nighttime. This is like 3 a.m. in the morning, like 4.18 in the morning. He's on the land and they're on the sea about three or four miles away. And he sees that they're struggling to get on the sea. This is Jesus, right? So he says this. He says, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 a.m. Fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He's walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. <laughs> but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. Right. Now, this is where I believe, I cannot prove what I'm about to say from Scripture, but this is where I know some of the disciples were black because that's the first thing black people would have said. <laughs> if they would have seen that dude walking, we'd have swam in the opposite direction and took our chances. The scriptures would have said that Jesus reached out his hand and pulled Curtis back into I'd have been gone. I'd have been gone. It's a ghost. That's all I needed to hear. I'm not going to sit here like y'all and be walking. Like, wait, wait. Nah, I'm gone. Some of these disciples have melanin because they don't play. No, but you know why they thought it was a ghost? Because they're aware of what the sea represents. They're aware of what the sea represents. They thought it was a ghost and they're terrified. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were truly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When he got into the boat and the sea stopped, the wind stopped, they were like, Whoa, who is this that commands the winds and the sea? Because to them, the sea is uncontrollable. It's chaos. It's darkness. And Jesus is just walking on that thing. Just like he's hovering 
over the deep, walking on the sea. Not a pond, but the sea, and he's chilling. Every step, I'm outside. I'm outside. Revelation 13, verse 1. Same as Daniel. Listen. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns and his blasphemous names on his heads. This language is intentional to try to communicate to them like this, the sea and all the, the deities and the, and the evil and the great power that comes out of it that, that, we're all, that you're all afraid of. Saying, I, I control them. They're not more powerful than me. These beasts come out of the sea. And that's intentional language so that the people who it was written to would be like, wow, the sea? Whoa, what's going to happen here? Because the sea is chaos. Darkness. Powerful evil. That's why these beasts come out of it. The worst evil that they can think of comes out of the sea. Only to be subdued by the God that they worship. And then you get to Revelation 21.1. This is what he says here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. Now, scientifically, you'll think, man, does God not like the ocean? That's a scientific question, right? Man, does God, we're not going to be able to swim in heaven? Ain't going to be no beaches and stuff like that? I know, but I thought that. I was like, the Lord, I mean, I thought, I was like, well, I don't go to the beach now, so it ain't going to affect me. Heaven's still going to be, what am I going to do, go there and lay out? Like, what happens to I was like, I don't go to the beach now, so it's not affecting me. But that's how you think when you think about that. But that's not what he's communicating. The sea, the measure of darkness and evil and other supernatural deities that are supposed to be powerful do not exist in eternity with God and his people. You're going to a place where you don't got to worry about the sea. The sea, the stuff that fears you, these other gods don't exist. The God that exists is me. And the people that exist with him are not these other powerful civilizations. It's you. You will be with me and the sea is no more. This is a significant reality. Remember when I said that God knows everything, right? So when he says stuff at the beginning... He parallels some stuff at the ending. So now he's hovering over the sea, showing he has dominion and power over it. And in the end, the sea is not even there anymore. You can't get more powerful than it just doesn't even exist. At the alpha of his word in Genesis, we see the reality of this. Authority over the sea. At the omega of his word in Revelation, we see this reality of his authority over the sea. And the sea represents cosmic powers of darkness, creation narratives 
that have made millions, billions of people worship these things, worship false gods. Even God's own people will reject them for the belief of these sea deities. And so when God demonstrates his authority over them, like parting the Red Sea, he said, I'm not going to just give you a tale. I'm going to let you see it. So instead of going around that, the sea that you're afraid of, we're going to walk right through it. You know why? Because I'm God over it. Get out of the way. And then when your enemies come, the people that worship these deities from the sea, I'm going to go ahead and close it up and let them be with him. This is the God we believe in. Mm, wait till we get to the 10 plagues. This isn't about me. It's about God's word. This is incredible. He's just laying it out there. We just haven't really been there to see it, but we're going to see it in this series. We're going to give God his praise. We ain't going to praise the people who tell it, say it. We're going to give God his praise. Let's get back on track. Let's get back to Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. You got stack, right? Remember the stack. Now, I said one thing earlier that I need to correct. I said in Genesis 1-2, God is hovering over the stack, saying, I'm outside. That's not exactly accurate. What God is saying is, I created outside. <laughs> I created outside. I'm not outside. I created it. So what does this mean for us? How does this affect your day-to-day -day living as a Christian, what we would call spiritual warfare? What does this mean for us? First, we must take it serious. We must take it serious. And by it, I don't just mean spiritual warfare, but I mean the weapon against it, the, the competitive clarification of reality, the Bible. We must take it seriously. Because you can take the idea of spiritual warfare more seriously than the Bible that clarifies what it is. We have to take it, spiritual warfare, and the Bible seriously. This is not a clever book or a book that you can't relate to because it happened thousands of years ago. God is giving us spiritual warfare intelligence. We get discernment from here. You know why? Because there are various narratives that rival our reality as well. There are stories, narratives that rival the reality. Look, these, these supernatural deities didn't go away. They didn't end when those civilizations did. They just transitioned to new narratives that rival the real narrative. 
I know people who have walked away from the faith and wrote books saying that Christianity is fake because it borrowed its narratives from these other civilizations. Or it wasn't the first narrative. You got it wrong, fam. God didn't care about being first. As a matter of fact, I think God intentionally let those narratives come first because he was like, look, I'm going to let you get your story out. Kanye, I'm saying, uh, Taylor Swift, real quick, I'm going to give you back the mic in a second. But Beyonce had the best album. No, this is what he, this God is saying, look, I'm going to let you get your narrative out. But when it's all said and done, mine is going to change the world. Who's worshiping Marduk? <laughs> Who knows what Apsu is and Tiamat? We make fun of Greek mythology right now. Zeus looking wild in, in Thor 4. I'm still mad at that. <laughs> Not because Zeus is looking wild, but the, never mind. I ain't gonna get <laughs> there are various narratives from cosmic powers of darkness that affect you and I today. And why science is an amazing thing. And I have great respect for scientists. As an entity, science rivals our narrative. It makes us look at the Bible in a creative sense. Scientific. Like, how can this happen if this, because science says, man, we're not worried about science in that sense. We need science for many other things. But not to understand how the world came into being. Here's a question we all need to ask ourselves. What gods are you listening to right now? What cosmic powers of darkness are you listening to now that rival the clarifying reality of Scripture? And they don't seem like gods. They seem like ambivalence, ease, comfort. Complaining, gossip, slander, sinful judgment. I don't like, I'm not a reader. Okay, good. In God's sovereignty, he allowed you to listen to the Bible on record. Get you one of them Bible apps and listen. All this sense of like, ah, uh, I'm just not, you know. That stuff, those are. Those are spirit of the age, cosmic powers of darkness. You know, one of the greatest ones is, one of the greatest is because there are no immediate consequences for sin, there are none at all. So people just slip into stuff and then there's no immediate consequences and they think like, man, grace is amazing. And you don't realize that those, the consequences are you are moving away from having a desire to be around God, to be around his people, to serve in his church. You don't realize you're moving away from the presence of God. Yeah, Do you realize that the life that we're living now is preparing us to spend eternity with God? And if you don't like to be around God and his people now, you're not going to like to be around him in heaven. You're not going to like it. What would you want to do worshiping God all the time when you ignored him here? It was a problem here. It was a burden here. It's not going to all of a sudden go there and be like, oh, God, no. This is preparing us for another life, for the, where the sea is no more. The, the creation narrative, the cosmic powers of evil no longer exist. What gods are you listening to? What narratives are influencing your life? This is real, brothers and sisters. 
And some of us treat it like it's, there's no such thing as optional community church. That's part one. Part two, the light. And we'll do that next Sunday. Because y'all not ready for that one. In this creation narrative, God isn't concerned with the order of creation in a more scientific way. And the people that he was writing to were not thinking that way. They were thinking this has supernatural implications. There's another layer of what God is saying and doing in the Bible that's not just about us. He died on the cross for our sins. And we need that. And that's real. But it's not just that. God's doing something else, and by his grace, we're going to see that throughout this series. Let's pray. Father, you begin (laughs) incredibly, you begin with yourself hovering over the sea. That's the first action that we see in the Bible. Verse 1 just summarizes quickly that you created the heavens and the earth. And then we see you hovering over the darkness, the depth, the, 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 the vastness of a darkened, watery abyss. And then your word ends with that sea doesn't exist anymore. It's not just that the water itself doesn't exist, but what the water represents, the chaos, the disorder, the dysfunction, the evil see deities, the leviathans, the dragons, and all those things that you say you subdue in your word. You begin showing us your authority over them, and then you end your word showing us your authority over them by them not even existing. Father, I pray that if I've said anything today, and if I say anything in this series that is not of you, then I pray that they would forget it or that it would be brought to my attention so that I could correct it. I'm not trying to impress anyone with this stuff. I'm trying to help us all grow in an endless fascination with your word and with you. Lord, help us to see our Bible with fresh eyes. Not because we're looking to get out of it something that how does this affect me, but that we're just amazed at who you are and what you do and the levels of reality. There's so much that I've missed, Lord. But in your kindness, you're opening my eyes now. And by my eyes, you allow me to open the eyes of others. So, Father, I pray that this would be about you, whoever says any of these truths. As long as they're true about you, may you be glorified. We thank you for this, Lord. And we look forward to the day when the cosmic powers of darkness are no more. But until that day, help us to know our weapons, to trust our weapons, and to use our weapons. And our weapons are your word, your truth, your church, and all of it. There are no Lone Ranger Christians out there. May there be none in here. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Remember, if you have any questions pertaining to this message, you can text those to 240-623-1111.
240-623-8076. That's 240-623-8076 as projected on the screen. I always feel like we're in a telethon when you do that. Yeah. I feel like I'm like, hey, we just got a pledge for 500. Okay, good. Thank you. Is the, we're going to do a Kirk Camera fund right now. 240. Well, right now, uh, the question we have right now is this one. Um, it's a question about uh, how you would term the marine spirit. Is that that comes from these creation stories? Would you um, call that? Would you term that um, as another god? What spirit? The marine. You know how how things come from the sea. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. I'm gonna say I thought that was a you know a TV show or something. I need to look into. I, I think any deities that come from the sea are not of God. I think, I mean, I only chose about six verses, but if you want to, what I would suggest is what you can do, especially if you have something like Logos, right? If you have something like Logos or some kind of software that you can type in a word and just type in the word C. Or if you have the ability, you know what? You know what I'll do? I don't know if I can do this, but there's a, I, so in the dictionary of deities, demons, and I have this dictionary, it's like a thousand pages. C is in that. Maybe I'm going to see if I can get you guys to cut. But what I would do is just look at how the C is spoken of in the Bible. And sometimes it's spoken of positively, but when it's negative, listen to what it's saying and how God is interacting with C or sea monsters or all these things. And you'll see, like, there is no, any whatever marine spirit that is, that's not of the Lord at all. You won't, that's not that. The point that God is showing you is there are no deities that come from the watery abyss. There is no such thing. It's like God is, or if they do, they're in subjection to the God that you serve, right? You'll see this. God does not actually, we, we misunderstand something. You'll see this in this series as we go through it. We got a long way to go, right? But in this series, you'll see when God talks about these, these idols are not gods, we think they're no other God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying these statues have no power, but there are deities that exist. God isn't saying they're not real. He's just saying they're not me. There's a difference. And so I think anything like that, a marine spirit, all of that stuff is not from the Lord at all. And I think it's meant to get us to worship something else. This is why, I mean, when you, this is why you'll see all this beast come out of the sea. These are things that people worship. When they worship the beast, he has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and stuff like that. That's all intentional language to try to help us see like, oh, the deeper spiritual reality. This is supposed to represent powerful realities. And God's saying, they're not me, though. That's the point. He's not saying they're not real. He's saying they're not me. Um, in your study, uh, is there any indication as to why uh, powers of darkness come from the sea? Uh, I, so I think this is why. Because, well, first of all, you have to understand, like, these narratives come from somewhere, right? And when we, get to, when we get to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, I can break down a lot more. I don't want to say a lot now because I want to share it in the context of this storyline, supernatural storyline of the Bible. But, yeah, the, these, these come from cosmic powers of darkness that have rebelled. Now, this, I think they start with the sea because the sea is a force that God is an authority of that can't be reckoned with. 
Like, they, you know, this is why we love movies that have like, oh, Atlantis and Underwater and Aquaman, because you can't tame the sea, right? We, we built amazing structures on land, right? But the mountains and the sea, those are things that like, we can't tame them. You know, you don't see cities on top of mountains in the same way. Like you can't, in the sea, I think it's no joke. Like I'm, you ever watch those like uh, Discovery Channel, like, and you're just amazed, like, dad, these fish, these kind of fish exist. Like, there's so much we don't know, right? So the sea represents sort of an untamable reality. And most of these civilizations, you got to remember, they don't think they're getting this from cosmic powers of evil. So in their minds, they're trying to explain to their civilization the creation of the world, but they can't explain where water comes from. So it's a primeval reality. And by again, primeval just means as old as the age of time. So in their minds, they see water as something that is preexistent almost, and then their gods come out of that water. Now, what I think is actually going on is God allowing them to have that particular narrative because they start with the sea and the sea starts with him. So in reality, these narratives are showing submission to the God of the Bible because he doesn't come out of the sea. He's hovering over it. And it doesn't, and this narrative doesn't say he created it. It just shows that he's dominant over it. He's not concerned with if you think he created it. He's concerned with them knowing that he has authority over it. And so that's why I think this is happening. But I, I you know, I, I've read a lot of the, you know, when you get into these ancient Near Eastern religious civilizations, philosophies, they just become so wild that after a while you're just like, all right, man, I don't think I'm going to read I got other things to do, man. I don't know if I want to read about this, this, and this. So I haven't gone into a deeper study of it because on one level, it's, it, for me, it's kind of a waste of time on some level. I know enough to know this is what they thought, this is what they taught. And I, there's more I could have said, but I just wanted to, to get through. But if someone wants to talk to me about it, we, I can explain a little bit more or point you in resources where it may be beneficial for you to read. All right, um, so I've been alerted that the questions, when I ask them here, they are not coming through. Okay. Um, so can you uh, repeat them, and I'll uh, make sure they're short like this one. Um, why, is it, um, why is it God in verse 1 and then Spirit of God later? That's a great question. So the Bible doesn't say why, so let me just say my answer will be just trying to answer the question. I'm not, there's no verse that says why. But I think God is establishing from the beginning a sort of a Trinitarian framework. So he's establishing from the beginning there's a God and the spirit of God. And then you got to remember the, well, man, this gets into, all right. So, yeah, I can't fully answer this question yet. So, because I want to save it for when we get, because it'll make more, it'll be better in the narrative. But I, I'll just say this, you know, the, God is, remember, this is competing, the Bible is a competing clarification of reality, competing with these other deities, these other spirit gods, these other things, right? Most of these gods are polytheistic, these religions. So they have multiple gods, right? So God is, in one sense, relating to his people, and his people think they're multiple gods. Don't forget, in Exodus 32, when they created the golden calf, what did they say? Here, are, O Israel, are your gods. They spoke in plural term. They're polytheistic. I'll say this. I think I said this before. I can't prove this, but I think, and other theologians think this, so I'm not alone, that God wouldn't reveal the Trinity fully 
because they would just worship either God or Jesus or the spirit because they were so polytheistic. They couldn't process, no, it's one of us. We're three different, we're of the same essence, but three different persons. They couldn't process that. So when God is introducing God and the spirit of God, he's showing like, hey, you're used to more than one God. Okay, the God that you worship is similar. But that's all I'm going to say right now. That's all I'll say to that, because there's more to be said later on in this series. That's a great question, though. It's a very good question. So um, do you have any insight on what exactly happens when spiritual beings battle each other? Like, can they wound and kill each other? Um, that type of thing. And can you repeat the question? Oh, can I repeat the question? Yeah. I got lost as soon as you started asking the question. Do I have any insight on what happens when deities, supernatural beings fight each other? And what happens? Do they kill each other and whatnot and all that? What happens? Do I have any insight? Yeah. Am I going to share it? No. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Because that is an important, important, important reality when we get to the flood in Genesis 6. That is an important and beyond it. So, yes, I have some, but I'm not going to, I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer that one. I'm not going to say anything to that. Thank you. It wasn't my question, so. Don't okay, good. Not, well, I'll, 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 let me say this. I'll say this. I'll just say this. You know you guys bait me all the time. I can't help it. There's no indication that, we, that, that the Bible says that any supernatural beings die. Not until Revelation 20, when they're thrown into the lake of fire, which God is calling the second death. So they don't die, but something does happen, and we'll get to that at another time. Um, is it possible to get demons from the sea? Is it possible to get demons from the sea? Yes. So I'm not sure if the question is asking, do people think demons come from the sea or that? But here's what I would say. And you'll. When we get to the flood is when I can really break this down. The ancient Near East, the Jews did not think demons were angels that rebelled against God. Demons are something very, very, very specific. They're not what we tend to think demons are. There's evil spirits, you know, deaf and mute. You know, Jesus sometimes would name them. Come out of them, you deaf and mute spirit. Come out, you know, legion. You got these. Those are not demons, though. They ain't, at least the Jews did. Now, you may think that way. That's fine. That's you. The Jews did not think. They had a very specific thing they thought were demons, and they did not come from the water. Now, when we get to Genesis 6 and some other, we'll be able to unpack that more. But I, demons are something. That's why the demons... We'll get, we'll get, when we get to Genesis, we'll, we'll unpack it. Demons is not used a lot in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible. Demons is only used, if I'm not mistaken, three times. So some people tend to think, well, where did demons come from? Because they're in the New Testament all over the place, but they're not. But there's other stuff going on. And we'll, Lord willing, get to that. But demons are something told. But they're... But I'm not saying like, oh, demons are to be fit. Demons are the bottom of the totem pole. They're low, low, low. They represent something else. 
But it's important what they represent because it's, a, it's, a, it's another connection to a deeper reality. So, but we'll talk about that in probably a few, we'll get to Genesis 6 in a few messages. Yeah, we'll get there. Lord willing. So uh, when evil deities are removed from the new earth, will they ha still have access to the divine council? So when evil deities are removed from the new earth, will they still have access to the divine council? No. So in the, in the Revelation 21, when it says like, and the sea will be no more, that's a summation of essentially saying all cosmic powers of darkness are gone. Just before that, Revelation 21, 1, is Revelation 20, 11 through 15, right? It talks about death and Hades are thrown into the, uh, to the, book, to the eternal the lake of fire and all people whose names aren't written in the book of life. So essentially, that's the last scene that happens where they have any kind of influence. So when it comes to the divine council, they no longer are, are a part of the divine council. You know who becomes a part of the divine council? Us. We do. We do. There's a reason why Paul says in the Corinthians, don't, do you not know you're going to judge angels? But we'll get to that. I don't want to. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But no, we will be, we'll take the place. And when Paul said, you know, we're, we're going to, you're going to judge angels, he wasn't just talking about him and the apostles. He was talking to the Corinthian church who he was woefully correcting for sinful character and telling them, do you not know you're going to judge angels? This is 1 Corinthians 6. If you don't believe me, look it up. It's in every credible translation out there. So again, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, another question about the future. Um, do you, will we have cognitive thinking or choice and have a meaning that if we don't want to pray or worship here on earth, we won't do that in heaven? Like, what would that look like? So the future, the future, let me, let me, anybody got a magic eight ball around here? So. Uh, so here's the thing, right? I'll just say this. We're told in the New Testament that when Jesus comes, when we see him, we'll be like him, right? That's what makes us different than every other. It says we're going to be like him, right? So the question I would ask is, does Jesus ever not want to worship? It's, you're not going to not want to worship. But we're not going to sit around for millions of years singing songs either, right? So that's not the, that's, I personally think that is a scheme of the devil to make you think like, man, heaven is going to be somewhat boring because all you're going to be doing is worshiping and singing and, and all. And if you're from somewhere else, it's like, you're just going to be this chubby little dude floating around with a cloud around his butt. Like all these little, this is what I'm saying. It's not just creation there. I think the enemy... I think the enemy has done more work not getting with us on creation, but affecting where we're going. So we don't think about heaven because we can't imagine it being better than the best we experience on earth. This is why verses, this is why Paul says, like, I consider our present suffering not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. In 1 Corinthians uh, 12, he's like, 2 Corinthians 12, look, I was caught up to the third heaven. I saw things that I can't even, I'm not even allowed to communicate that are so wonderful that God had to provide a thorn in the flesh so that I would be humble because of the things I saw. What we experience in eternity is going to be like crazy. So I, I just, you're not going to go to heaven and be like, man, I don't feel like worshiping today. <laughs> That's just not going to happen. <laughs> it's just not gonna, I, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm just going to say it in, in the, I think 
Anyone who's like, I'm not going to worship in heaven ain't going to be in heaven. I just think anyone who has that, and that's why I think we take seriously it now. Because the, I don't think the grave, the grave doesn't give that many alterations. You're going to die and wake up how you, what you believed. And if you wasn't tripping when you was alive, you ain't going to all of a sudden be like, oh, my gosh, it's real. It's like, yeah, but you're not. And so that's why we take this stuff seriously. This is why we try to, we, 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 this is why it says he who conquers to the end. The Lord's trying to give us incentives like, look. If you persevere to the end, you will be saved. You will get this. I will give this person my name and these people this. And if you do this, and some of us are just like, well, I don't feel like reading. I don't feel like, why do I got to go to church? Okay, cool. But you're going to, but God's going to say, why should you come to heaven? You didn't want to go to church on earth. Why would you want to come to church up here? Why do you want to worship up here? I think you, why do you, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, of course, I don't know if God's going to say that, right? But. I think just the, the reality is I just think people think, hey, I can just kind of coast until then and then I'm going to be on fire for the Lord. And it's like you might be on fire, but not for the Lord. And that's the real that's the real reality. There are many people who are going to be like, I, I didn't love you then. You're not going to love them now. This is why we're going after it now. He said conquer to the end now, not like when you get here, you're going to, you know, then you'll change. And then no, he says, no, do the work now. Conquer to the end now. And I got you. When you get here, you're going to be rewarded. I see everything you're doing. I see what you're doing. And I will reward that. But we just, we don't, a lot of us just think, all right. It's like, all right, man, go, you know. Would it, would it, would it, would it, would it, uh, in the rich man, the Lazarus story, he said, look, he said, look, man, can you go back and, and send my, send somebody from the dead? He said, look, man, they got Moses and the prophets. This is what he said. They got the Bible. If they don't believe that, they're not going to believe somebody coming back from the dead telling them, hey, this is real. I'm, so I'm not saying nothing that hasn't been said. We got the scriptures. It's not like if we don't trust this, it's not like, oh, okay, we're going to trust something else. Remember, people saw Jesus do wild stuff, and they still didn't believe. Still didn't believe. So we now who have been given the responsibility and the faith to believe, we got to, as, as Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. You know why we're doing this series? You know how much work this is to do this series? You know why I'm doing it? Because I want to help us keep ourselves in the love of God. So when I stand before him, he could be like, I saw what you was doing. So you could, it's happening to me. I want it to happen to all of us. It takes work. Listen, you guys get me for an hour and a half. Well, Mike, an hour and a half out of 168 hours a week. You're not going to write him a bit in your face. Because I'm the only voice that you might hear that's challenging and saying these things. Because the rest of the week, you just don't, you don't have that. This is why we preach what we preach and how we do it, because we care. I want us, I want us all to be like, man, we made it. I want him to gather Solid Rock Church in eternity and be like, I saw y'all. And everybody's dead. Barbara, Kathy, everybody's dead. And we're like, yeah, we remember. But it's not going to happen if I'm like, hey, just do whatever. It's not going to happen that way. And I'm not that kind of pastor. And I'll never be that kind of pastor for his glory. So. so as we get closer to the Lord's return, do you believe that demons and other deities will be more active on the earth, kind of like a last hurrah? 100%. 100%. I mean, in Revelation, it says, woe to you, earth. Woe to you, sea, because the devil knows his time is running short. It, of course, I think so. I think 100%. I think we're singing it now. I think the spirit of the age, I mean, I, I, 
I just, we're singing it now. I'm not even talking about on some. There have been periods of human history that seem crazier than now. But when you look at the spirit of the age, there is a pervasive element where there's, we have just, you know, we also talk about social media. Like what technology did, you know what, technology is a wonderful thing, but you know what it's done on the, on the bad side? It's helped us connect with other people who have the same proclivities that we do. So now I can find out what these people who struggle with God think over here and their strength in numbers, right? There's a reason why in Revelation it says, and the four corners of the earth and people rose up together like the sands of the sea and, and standing in opposition with the beast against God. There's strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers. This is why God was like, listen, I'm going to win this war for you, but I'm not going to let you rely on their strength in numbers. I'm going to let it get stripped down to just 300 men against all these dudes, and y'all going to win. There's a reason why when they went to go look at the promised land from, to go look at the land of Canaan from the wilderness, and they came back in numbers and were like, hey, man, they like giants over there. They said, we're grasshoppers, and people were terrified, right? Oh, man, how are we going to go there? Except Joshua, he was like, man, the Lord is with us. Listen, he's outside. Let's go. But everybody else was like, I don't want to go. You know why? Because they forgot that he just parted the Red Sea. It's like, so that the God that parted the Red Sea can't stop me? But God is always doing that. He's always doing that. Like, who, where's your confidence going to be at? There's strength in numbers. So I think, yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of stuff increase. And so we get overwhelmed. Like, man, it's just it's like everybody's this so everybody's that. And we get overwhelmed by numbers. And God said, look, I've always only had a remnant. I've always only had a remnant. Remember the 7,000 that would not bow the knee to Baal? God always has 7,000. Some people that is, is going to believe until they die. But then there's always going to be people who fall away. I want to be one of those who take their last breath like I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus. And then all the other people that I knew and loved that are with them. I'm not, I'm not, so the numbers and stuff, and let me just say this lastly about that. When Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for broad is the road and wide is the gate that lead to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. I think there's a lot. The more we see people are just more like this and more that and this. We can get intimidated like anybody human being would. But we have to remember we're part of the remnant. Like God isn't God's strength isn't in how many people believe. His strength is his strength is in him. And we believe in that. So, yeah, I think there's a I think there's a total ramp up. Uh, and, I'm, and you know what it is? It's spirituality. There's a ramp up of spirituality. Like, well, I'm, I don't go to church, but I'm, you know, I know. So you'll hear a lot of people say stuff like, God, I believe in God. I believe in God. And, you know, we hear that. We think, oh, man. And it's like, uh, well, there's a lot of gods. For like, what God are you talking about? DJ Khaled released an album called God Did. God said, okay, but I don't, what God are you talking about, though? Because the God that I believe, I don't think he, I don't think he's appreciative of the things you said on that album. I don't think the God, the God I know didn't want you to make that album, fam. So I don't know what God you're talking about, but, but again, that's a different story. Um, uh, why aren't demons talked about often in the epistles? <laughs> Can you repeat the question for those? Why aren't demons talked about often in the epistles? I'll just, I'm just going to say this. Because they're, 
they're weak for real. They don't need to be talked about because they're of no real concern to believers. Now, don't get me wrong. They're still supernatural beings, right? But they're not in any way, shape, or form something that believers need to fear or even be concerned with. So God's not even talk, he doesn't even mention them a lot. They're, they're described in narratives like the Gospels and Acts. You won't find any credible translation that talks about like demons being in believers or we need to cast demons out of believers, all of that stuff. You won't find that in the Bible. I'm not saying that it's not stuff that there's some truth to things like deliverance ministries, but that's something different. You won't see any verse that says that. You'll see stuff like resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? It says be sober-minded, cast your anxiety. It says nothing about that stuff because that's not necessarily, yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, as a parent uh, for children interested in this or asking questions, are there any recommended resources for what we're talking about? As a parent? I don't know how old the how, children are. Yeah, that's not reflected. So is there, are there resources that talk about this? I, I tell you what, I will provide resources in the app this week for members to just kind of see some stuff, all right? So I'm gonna, I'll provide them links to those things this week in the app for you who are parents and stuff that want to just think through these things and help their children. Uh, there's some good resources there, but I'll put them in the app this week rather than trying to name them and then you go on Amazon and try to find them. I'll give you links this week in the Solid Rock app. If you're a member, you'll be able to have those. If you're not, hopefully you know someone who's a member and they can, they can tell you. Because you can access stuff, but you won't be able to get direct communication from us if you're not a member of Solid Rock. So, so in other words, be a member of Solid Rock and you'll get them resources, baby. You get them. So. Membership has its privileges. It has it. There it is. Forget American Express. Membership, baby. <laughs> Hey, so this is the last question, um, and this is, uh, this is a perseverance question. Uh, mm -hmm. The person uh, says, I'm currently in various environments that are filled with other gods. Mm -hmm. It can be pretty discouraging at times. Mm -hmm. How do I stand strong in truth? That's a great question. You know, when Paul, you know what's interesting about Ephesians 6, right? So Paul... He, you know, he calls this the earth. This is post-resurrection theology, right? So this is after Jesus has died and rose from the dead. When Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, he calls, in verse 612, he calls the earth a present darkness, right? So this is post-Christ victory, post-resurrection theology. This is a present darkness. And then he lists all these weapons to fight against the, 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 you know, the devil's darts, so to speak. You know what's not in that list? All the supernatural spiritual gifts. None of those are in that list. You know what's not in that list? Uh, all, uh, techniques and all these other little things that you hold on to. None of that stuff is in the list. You know what's in the list? And this is what he says will fight against the devil. So this is, this is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, right? What's in the list is truth, what you believe about the Bible, Righteousness, which you believe, your salvation, right? It's all these things that are just regular old having confidence in the truth that you believe. And you grow in confidence by continuing to read and you know, process these things and believe these things. In the wilderness, in the, in the wilderness, when Jesus is 
He does, this is Jesus. He could have done all this supernatural stuff to Satan. He quoted the Bible three times. He quoted Deuteronomy 8 twice and, and Deuteronomy 6 once. I said that was enough to resist the devil, right? Some of what, we're, what we need to do is learn how to really take what we believe and apply it. See, one thing that I think has happened in the church is that I think we think grace is, in, is inevitable, but it's not. It's intentional. It takes work to grow. It takes work to think about how do I apply this? It takes more effort than we're willing to give sometimes, and so we get discouraged. Because we think it's from God, we think it should be easy, but it's not. Natural growth, everyone will grow naturally. If you went to my old apartment back in the hood, you would see little things like CC, age, da 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 Jamie, did you see that? But that's not how it works in the, in, the, in the Lord. You can be in church for 40 years and be a babe in Christ. Here's, let me give you biblical proof of that is Hebrews 5. He said, many of you should be teachers of the law right now. But you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Solid food is for the mature. And how do they get mature? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. A lot of us just don't want to do that. and then we. So I'm not saying the person asking the question doesn't. What I'm saying is, is a lot of it is just staying your word and not just staying it, memorize that word. Put that effort in. You know, last week I told a few, this is the last thing I'm going to say because I don't want to, want to be careful for children's ministry. But last week I was blessed by many things. Many of you all said things that have affected me and will affect me for a long time. Very grateful. But the one thing that was said by my mom that, I was, that affected me the most and it wasn't just because of my mom, but it partly was. But when she said at the beginning of seeing, she calls me Cease, Cease, grow in the Lord, I would see all these three by five cards with scriptures on them all over the place. And when she said that, she was talking about 1999. And I said, wow, Lord, I remember I wasn't, I was a, new believer, the thought of being a pastor was the furthest thing from my mind. I just wanted to know his word. And I wanted to not just be like, we're somewhere in Matthew. I wanted to know where it was. I thought there was power in knowing where the verse is and knowing what the verse says. And I would drive around for a year with just index cards all over the place, memorizing. And when my mom said that, I thought, wow, Lord, you gave me a hunger for your word 23 years ago, and that hunger is still here. Like, I still want to know your word. And I was like, you know what? Out of everything that was said, that was the most precious. Is that the Lord gave me a hunger then, and by his grace, I have a hunger now. But I think a lot of us have lost that hunger. It's what Revelation said to the church in Ephesus. You lost your first love. Some of us have been hurt by things, church hurt, different things. You've lost that love. And so now you're just kind of like sort of optional community church. And that's not how you conquer. Everybody's been hurt, fam. Everyone has been hurt, disappointed. Everyone has experienced that. And we've also done it to others. But we stay. We go after. We, we, we keep ourselves in the love of God. We read. We memorize. I meditate now more than ever. I read. I don't read as much now because when I read, I just get, I'm like, dang, well, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. And I just start, I just sit back and think. And like, when it's about, I meditate on this law day and night. I think, medit 
You know what, Mike, man? We need to do some more meditation because that's the key to me. I think reading is good, but meditating is, is, is necessary, in this, particularly in this season. So I think, yeah, there's no real tricks to how do you fight this stuff. We're always going to be surrounded around more evil than we think we're surrounded around righteousness. This is, why, this is one of the only places where it's like, man, yes, I'm coming to church. That's what they said. I came running when they said unto me, let us go. And so, you know, we're taking it. Man, man you might have closed out with that. You know, it's like there's a sense of. Where it's like, oh, man, I'm around believers. Finally, I've been around these people all week. You know, it's like, finally, man, I'm around some people that believe what I believe. Man, can I get an amen? Can I get a hug? Can we go out to lunch? Can we do something? Why? Because Monday is coming, right? (laughs) There's a reality to being around that, and we just have to press in. There's no real secret. So meditate on Ephesians 6. And that'll give you some real practical. It's not supernatural. I mean, it's supernatural, but it's not supernatural to us. A lot of it is, what do I think? What do I believe? And think about the body parts, the helmet of, boom, salvation, right? So remember who you are. Meditate on your identity because that's what the devil goes after. You sin and he's like, man, you're not really a Christian, man. You just, you're not, you didn't. Christians don't do what you do or think the way you just thought. Yeah, whatever, man. Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, right? That's the heart, right? So I want to do, I want to, I want to obey the moral commands of the scriptures as best as I can. Right? There's there, we're gonna get there. There's there's reasons why all those body parts have particular things listed with them. And so we'll we'll talk about that. But we need to we need to end because it's children's ministry. They need to get out of there. They've been watching your kids and their kids, your kids don't listen to them the way they listen to you. And some of your kids don't even listen to you. So all right, listen, hopefully, hopefully you got your community. We're going to do this in, in gratitude to the Lord. The sea is no more. There's going to come a day when all the cosmic powers of darkness, all the competing narratives that are there, that are trying to persuade us, they may not look like organized religions, but they're organized thoughts that help us lose our religion, right? So we take this in, in memory of the ultimate sacrifice, right? The ultimate defeat of the cosmic powers of darkness is when Jesus Christ himself, the son of God, and even remember the demons even said who he was. I don't think there's an encounter with a demon except for Mark 9 when he's talking to the boy's dad. I don't think there's an encounter that Jesus had with a demon where the demon doesn't say who he is. They always say who he is. So it's a So if the demons say who he is, then we should definitely be saying who he is and believe it because even the demons believe in our afraid, as James says. So we, this, is, this represents the ultimate defeat of the cosmic powers of darkness where Jesus' body was broken on the cross so our sins could be forgiven and we could be pulled out of that darkness into the light. Let's eat together. And this juice represents his blood that was shed on our behalf so that he could pull us out of the darkness into the light. Let's drink daily. Father, thank you for just your amazing grace. Lord, I pray that this series would, would glorify you as we look at, even though we're not, you know, we're not going to go through every passage of Scripture this way because we but I pray that the ones we do cover, the ones we do cover in this supernatural storyline, I just pray that you would help us to just grow deeper. 
there might not be something new stated every week, but it's just a re it's a reinstitution of the truth. We want to be people who are looking to deepen our truths, not finding something new to make us feel excited about. And even though some things will be new, what excites us is not that it's new. It's just new to us. This truth has been here for a long time. And so, Lord, help us to be people who, despite the competing narratives of cosmic powers of darkness that surround us, that we have the competitive clarification of reality, which is the Bible, to guide us and help us. Lord, may it, may it deepen next week as we look at the light and what you're doing in some of the other days of creation. Thank you for your mercy and your grace towards us. Lord, I agree with my brother, Mike, Lord, that you would heal and touch the bodies of those of us who are sick. Thank you for your healing work already. Lord, we, we trust miracle and modern medicine. We know you work through both. And so, Lord, we accept both and ask that you would work on behalf and act on behalf of our loved ones and, the, and our loved ones' loved ones for your glory and our good. Help us to remember our commitments this week. Help us to never forget your commitment to us for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you, guys. Love you, and we'll see you when I see you. Thank you, bro. Appreciate you, man.